Okay, well, to start out, I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how you've now ended up at NIH. Oh, sure. My name is Terry Armstrong, and um, I started in oncology nursing back in 1987. I started at Ohio State, and um, I worked in with patients with leukemia. And at that time, patients with those illnesses would come into the hospital at the time of diagnosis and oftentimes stay for a year. We would change the holiday decorations in the room and they would be there getting, you know, their induction chemotherapy and their consolidation. So I really got to know them. And um, at the same time, my mother was actually diagnosed with leukemia and became a patient on the floor where I work. So, you know, during my shift, I would take care of patients on the floor. And then in the evening, I would be with her. So I got this perspective of seeing what it was like from both sides. Mm -hmm. And um, when she passed away, I really decided that I wanted to focus on understanding the impact of the disease and the treatment we were giving on patients and that that would be kind of my focus. So I was able to go back and get a master's in oncology. And then I did a post-master's nurse practitioner. Um, but working with people with leukemia was too close, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. to my own personal experience. So I had an opportunity to either stay in leukemia care um, or transition to care of patients with central nervous system tumors, which was totally foreign to me and decided to go that way. So for about 30 years, I had been a practicing nurse practitioner taking care of patients with central nervous system tumors, but always had the um, idea that I wanted to more fully understand their experiences and do some research in that area. So I started doing some work looking at what their quality of life was. And my initial findings were not what I thought, right? We were giving patients at that time, this really intensive chemotherapy where they would be in the hospital and they would be nauseated and they would need transfusions. And then I would give them a tool to measure quality of life. And they would say, my quality of life is great. <laughs> Right. So there was yes. this disconnect between quality of life and what I saw people experiencing. So um, when I decided to go back and get my PhD, I focused on kind of understanding that uh, uh, the, the connect between the biologic processes of the disease and symptoms yeah. with the recognition that quality of life is really important, but it's really subjective and it's really influenced by other things in the person's life. Um, that are equally important as the the cancer, right? Their their support system, their family, um, how how they feel about the treatment that they're doing, all those things impact their quality of life. So, um, so I focused on understanding the experience of symptoms in patients, and in my doctoral work, I developed a tool to measure the experience of symptoms in patients, and then my research career, I've um, focused on kind of marrying that understanding with exploring the biologic basis mm -hmm. and the underlying biologic risk of symptoms, and then also developing interventions that are based on that understanding of the experience and that biology. So I've been at the NIH since 2016, and I'm a senior investigator, um, which we use weird terms at, um, at the NIH, a senior investigator is like a professor. Um, and I, my program really focuses on improving the life quality of patients with CNS tumors through this translational uh, research approach. 
And um, yeah, so I, I focus on understanding the biology of the symptoms, um, the underlying risk, um, and then also collecting data to fully understand what the experience of the patients are. So um, during my time as a, a nurse practitioner, I would see these things happen over and over and over again to different patients at different points in the disease process. So I recognized that I needed to kind of understand that full picture. So what happens along that trajectory and then try to understand what are the biologic underpinnings when I would see that common symptom occurrence. So um, I lead a natural history study at um, the NIH and that allows us to collect data on patients over the course of their illness. So not just when they're part of a therapeutic clinical trial or just a diagnosis, but really from diagnosis through survivorship or the end of life for that person. And we look at things like um, their overall symptom burden, their experience of depression, anxiety. We look at their general health status, but at the same time, we're collecting the clinical data about what they're being treated with we collect um, their family history, their past medical history to understand their um, underlying risk. And we collect biologic samples so we can start to explore that relationship between what they're, they're perceiving and then what we're able to identify as the biologic processes. Wow, that is incredibly interesting and important. So when you're so going back to what you said about what you, you you saw before, so do the patients still perceive that their quality of life is good if they are stuck in the hospital for, or was that just? I mean, do you have did you, has your research come up with any answers to why they were saying that? Yeah, you know, I think what my research has shown is that no. Um, two individuals are the same. Yeah. And it's really their perspective of what that is and kind of the meaning of what they're going for through for them that influences that. Um, you know, I think the thing about quality of life is it's incredibly important. I think if you ask any healthcare provider, we all want to improve the patient's quality of life, but sometimes it's not the things that we can do that impact that. We can try to um you know, how we provide care, uh, influence it by the words we use, um, you know, how we explain things, the time that we take, um, the support that they may need, whether it be uh, the financial toxicity that they may experience from their treatment or the symptoms and side effects that we can give them medication or try to impact. Um, but there's always this intangible part that's really there their perception. And, um, you know, during the, the course of my caring for patients, there was one patient who really taught this lesson to me. His name was Dr. Carl. He was a, a physician. He was an ophthalmologist. And when he was first diagnosed with his, um, his brain tumor, he said, you know, I don't care. I have to work as long as I can work, you know, let's do the treatment. Let's keep going. And when he couldn't work, he wanted to travel. And when he couldn't travel, he wanted to spend time with his family. And when he couldn't do that, he wanted to be able to be taken out to the dinner table. And when he couldn't do that, holding his wife's hand at the bed was what defined quality of life for him. So not only is it different between individuals, but I think 
it um, is relative and it can change in an individual person over time, right? So it's always understanding the perspective of the patient, but at the same time, looking at those factors that we can impact. So, you know, if someone is saying, I have a good quality of life, but you know, they're having, you know, vomiting, they yeah. may not recognize that if you can, if you can manage that, you may make it better. So did that help? No, that totally helped. And I, yeah, I had not thought before that people's quality of life idea can change over time, which is a very important variable, right? Because exactly. Yeah, no, because once he could no longer work, his perspective changed. So it was still quality of life. Right. And I think the thing that sometimes we as healthcare providers, you know, maybe don't think clearly about is that we have to understand what their definition of quality of life is, right? And as long as they're informed and that they are telling you, you know, what their goals are and what's important to them, that should guide us, you know, particularly with the patients that I, I uh, research and I care for, um, brain tumor patients, it's a very rare cancer, about 2% of all cancers. Mm-hmm. It involves the brain. So that can be overwhelming. And sometimes patients have neurologic symptoms. They may have issues with memory or speech or the ability to walk on their own. And, you know, it's easy for someone who doesn't spend time with those patients to look at that situation and say, well, I wouldn't do treatment, right? I, I wouldn't do treatment. I would go to Hawaii or, you know, I, I would focus on, um, you know, something else or, um, you know, does that person really understand what's happening to them? Um, and so I think, kind of recognizing that you need to understand where the patient is and what they're experiencing and helping that to guide you to kind of make sure you're addressing what their issues are. And how does the family play into that? Because I feel like that's also a really difficult thing because the family doesn't necessarily perceive the patient as the same person that they've always been. And so, so is there, do you have any tips for on how to balance what the patient wants versus what the patient's family wants? Or do you listen to both? Or I? Yeah, you know, that's a really important area for research. And there's a number of nursing researchers, even other than me, that have spent a lot of time with that. Heidi Donovan and Paula Sherwood at the University of Pittsburgh are are two. And we're starting to um, understand that as well. But um, I think... um, brain tumors in particular and spine tumors are tumors that it's definitely a disease that impacts the entire family. Um, And oftentimes when they're diagnosed, it happens very suddenly. So um, it's estimated between 40 and 50% of patients present to an emergency room with an acute event. And that's how their cancer is diagnosed. You can imagine you're going about your life and then all of a sudden you're in an ER. And so it's they're thrust into this world and their families thrust into that world as well. So there's changes in roles for them. They may not be able to return to work. And in fact, over 80% of those with malignant tumors cannot return to work from the time of diagnosis. Um, You know, maybe if, if they were caring for the children, maybe they have physical limitations or cognitive limitations that make that more difficult. So the impact is is for their significant other, their caregiver, and their family. So, you know, some of the things that we try to do. So at the NIH where I work, um, we are able to provide care at not no cost to the individual. Um, it's paid for by taxpayer dollars, and as part of that, 
we provide transportation to our clinic and we include that a family member can come with them. So that way, when they're seen, they're there with their support system and that that carer is also there to receive the information that they need. Um, you know, I think it's a real limitation in healthcare kind of understanding the impact on caregivers. And I think the, um, the National Cancer Plan has addressed that. I think uh, uh, Joe Biden has um, addressed that with the new moonshot that understanding how do we provide support for those caregivers in a very structural way is important. Um, what we're trying to do is I'm working with an amazing uh, postdoc right now, uh, Macy Stockdale, who is focusing on really um, collecting information on from patients and caregivers on what coping styles do they have? Um, you know, how do they cope with things in their life so we can understand what they usually do. So the interventions we do are based on that. Um, understanding spirituality uh, for them and the importance of that, understanding the financial impact. So really kind of spending time not only with research looking quantitatively, but she'll also be interviewing those caregivers too, to try to understand kind of in the modern era, yeah. what, what that's like um, and how we can better improve it. But I think by allowing those caregivers or providing support for those caregivers to be there, we hope that that helps them and, you know, makes them be part of the team who are providing care to those patients. No, yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. So I don't want to take too much of your time, but I also wanted to ask, so you have clinical trials that are recruiting now. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. So I spoke about the natural history study that we do. We have um, that study where we collect data on patients at least once a year to kind of understand what's happening within the trajectory. Mm -hmm. And then a companion study to that is we have an online version where we collect information from the patient. So those who aren't able to come to see us at the NIH, they're able to participate remotely. And um, that allows us to get kind of a, a more uh, diverse and more geographically representative group of patients to understand the impact. Um, we have right now two interventional trials that we're doing. And I, um, one is um, looking at the use of virtual reality um, to improve the experience of scanxiety that our patients face. So most, most patients um, experience some anxiety around the time of their cancer diagnostic imaging. Um, and this tool, this use of virtual reality is a way to help the patients um, either through distraction or use of um, cardiac coherence breathing, depending on the scenario that they look at, learn to kind of self-regulate that anxiety that they may feel at the time of their MRI and their follow-up visit when they're learning if their tumor's stable or recurred or not. So Amanda King, who's a research fellow in my group, is leading that effort. And um, it's we're really excited about this study. Um, this type of application has been used primarily with pain. Um, it's been used in patients who have burns um, prior to their therapy. And um, what they find is that not only does it help them when they're using the virtuality, but they then learn those skills so that even without the headset, they're able to kind of apply that distraction or that cardiac coherence breathing technique. And we think there may be application beyond 
central nervous system tumors to other cancers as well, um, and just published the feasibility of that. We also are looking at a talk therapy program called CALM. This was developed by Gary Roden in Montreal and has been shown in other solid tumors to improve quality of life um, for individuals in reduced depression. Um, what we're doing um, is doing it in people with brain tumors because um, oftentimes these patients are not included in clinical trials either because of the rarity or they're afraid that they may have cognitive issues. And we've shown that it's feasible to do in these folks, mm -hmm. but we're also doing it via telehealth. Um, and that really hadn't been done before. This was an intervention where the individual would have to come into an office or see the clinician and spend time there. And um, we're doing it via telehealth so the patients can be in their own home. Um, and we think that's, you know, with, with COVID and our experience with that, how important it is. And for both that and the VR intervention, it's all done remotely with the patients at home. And we find that patients really appreciate that and not having to kind of get in a car, or get on a plane or come to see us to, to participate. Um, and then the last study we have, we're actually looking at the use of smart wearables. So one of the symptoms that we found is incredibly important in our patients is um, sleep disturbance. Um, when they get uh, radiation to the brain, uh, sometimes they experience hypersomnia or um, increased daytime sleepiness where they have to nap. And um, my lab is exploring the biology of that, why that's occurring, what genes make them at risk or are protective. And with the smart wearable study, we're using Fitbits to actually monitor patients' activity and sleep to gain a further understanding of what, what is impacting that for them and the relationship between the two things. And um, we are monitoring that for over a month. Um, and that's also something that people felt like our patients wouldn't be able to participate in, but we um, just submitted the paper looking at the feasibility of that, very feasible. We're collecting really important data to help us understand how active people are, You know, what is their sleep like, so we can intervene to kind of help make that better. So those are the studies that we have enrolling right now. Oh, no, I mean, maybe some other time we can interview you about that because that is just incredibly interesting. I did not know that their sleep was impacted. And yeah. I mean, just from having a puppy, I know how much <laughs> like sleep impacts me and my existence, right? And that yeah. all goes into quality of life. And yes. yeah. No. no, I'd love to talk about that. That's the, has been the focus of my lab. Uh -huh. So we actually um, had identified that this fatigue had been described after cranial radiation. But as a nurse practitioner, I noted, well, patients are having to nap during the day. Yeah. And we collected data and found that they actually had a shift in their melatonin. So yeah. they had a spike in their melatonin in the middle of the day, which probably aligned with why they were having to nap during the day. And then we found um, um, some clock genes that were associated with this effect and actually one clock gene per two that was protective. We developed an animal model. We developed transgenic mice to um, further explore the biology. And we think that we understand now this relationship between some of these clock genes and what the patients are experiencing with cranial radiation. So, you know, by kind of taking symptom science to um, understanding the, the biology, why the symptoms occur, then we can target, right, those who are at risk by understanding the biology and not just say, oh, you know, you're at risk for fatigue or sleep disturbance, so everybody needs this intervention. But no, let's see who 
has the risk or has the protective effect and target um, the treatment of symptoms, just like we target the cancer based on the biology. So I would love to talk to you about that. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super incredibly interesting. I will, yeah. yeah. Send me the paper and I will read it when it comes out and then I will. Yeah, no, yeah, I did not know that. Is there a way to block melatonin spikes just as a, I? Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, there are ways that you can impact it either by the use of light therapy. Yeah. Um, so, but you have to be careful how you do it in these patients, right? Because what right. our what our brain tumor patients are experiencing is similar to what like shift work disorder folks do, people who are trying to work evenings or nights. Yeah. where they kind of have a shift in their natural production. So the idea is with light, you can try to shift the melatonin back to where it needs to be later in the day, which is super exciting. No, no, that is, yeah, that is super exciting. Okay, okay, <laughs> back to this. I have one more question for you. Sure. Okay, so we have a lot of nurses it, probably in our audience that are thinking like, oh, I have this really good idea. I have an intervention that I would like to do. But how do you start thinking like, okay, here I have this intervention. How do you get to, okay, I can submit for a clinical trial. Like, you know what I mean? It's a huge yeah. thing, but we want to have like our, you know, our younger nurses think like this is possible and you have clearly done it. Right. So very yeah. successfully. Now, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think it's really important. You know, I talked about when I started at Ohio State um, and had my mother there and experienced that. At that time, there was a clinical trial looking at the impact of a couple of different mouth rinses on um, um, stomatitis that patients get on treatment. And the trial was negative, but as the nurse on the floor, I'm like, well, why are we testing these two medications? You know, what, what else has been evaluated? And so I had a mentor say to me, well, let's look at the literature together, a clinical nurse specialist. And I spent time and I looked at the literature and I, I found what the literature said and was able to write my first paper. And I think that curiosity that nurses who are working with patients have, that experience that what you see is really important to kind of guide research and make it clinically meaningful, right? If you're there at the bedside and you see these things, you're going to have ideas on what patients need and it, you're very close to that experience. So the thing that you need to think about is either partnering with someone who has the skills and doing the research part of it. Because when I started, I thought, well, I can do this on my own. And, and, I, and I tried, but I realized that you need that education, that doctoral education to understand how to develop a clinical trial, right? How, mm -hmm. how to do the statistical analysis. And that's not something that anybody knows you know, through osmosis, you have no, to go no. to school for that. So you can either partner with somebody who has those skills. And that's a really um, nice model that people talk about where um, clinical nurses and nurse practitioners partner with researchers, or you can decide to kind of go back and get that education and training. And, you know, I made that decision to go back and I was able to fit it within in my work, right? So I worked and and I went to school and I kind of continued to marry that clinical practice with what I was learning in research. So I, I love that part of things, you know, as a clinician, seeing the same thing over and over and thinking, I know what I can do about this, yeah, yeah. you know, going back and getting the tools so you can do it is, is totally doable. Um, and I, and I hope more nurses will consider getting those skills 
or partnering with someone like me who's gone back to school to get those skills to say, yeah, let's take your idea and let's make it come forward. All the research ideas that I've been able to explore and continue to explore now either come from my own or somebody else's clinical experience. So in the clinic, as one example, um, myself and the clinic nurses noted that if it was a young woman coming in for this one particular treatment, temozolomide, that we give brain tumors, that they would have a higher risk of myelotoxicity. We kind of knew it when we mm -hmm. saw there. So we went back to our data set. We found, yes, they were twice as um, high of a risk of developing this. And then I was able to take this my research skills to go and find a polymorphism associated with that risk. So we now are um, developing biomarkers. So we can say, hey, if the person has this biomarker, they're at risk. Um, you know, it was really this idea of how can we uh, modify the anxiety that patients feel around the time of their um, um, scan? Because as a nurse practitioner, patients would be calling me the week before just scared, right? Like for a couple of months, they can forget about the tumor, but when the MRI is coming up, it's like, my cancer is going to be back. How can I do it? So it's knowing that experience, like I need to do something to help them right before their MRI so they can reduce their anxiety. So when they come to their appointment to talk about it, they can actually hear what the physician is saying. They're not overwhelmed with the anxieties. So, you know, those are two examples that I think, yes, as you notice those things, and you have ideas that can inform and makes it a more meaningful research, I think, for the patients. No, thank you so much for taking the time to interview with me. And sure. um, yeah, I look forward to reading your paper. Absolutely. I'm happy to share.